This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I think the Biden administration is relatively realistic in terms of what it seeks to achieve with this boycott. And that's to message China and the international community that the United States has strong concerns about Chinese human rights abuses in Xinjiang, and it cannot be business as usual. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. China continues to make headlines with the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, preceded by a China-Russia summit and the ongoing humanitarian crisis in the Xinjiang region, as well as ever-present questions about the future of Taiwan. I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Bonnie Lin, a senior fellow for Asian security and the director of the China Power Project at CSIS. Bonnie served in the office of the Secretary of Defense as the Director for Taiwan, as Country Director for China, and Senior Advisor for China. Bonnie, we are so excited to talk with you today. You are the Director of the China Power Project here at CSIS, and I want to start there. What is the goal of the China Power Project? Suzanne, thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast. I've been a keen listener of the podcast, and I'm very excited to join you today. In terms of the China Power Project, we're one of three dedicated programs at CSIS focused on China. We examine China's growing capabilities with an increasing focus on China's external power or foreign policy. In broad terms, China Power examines five related categories of Chinese power, which is China's military, economic, technological, social, international image. Across these five categories, we look at how China's power has grown or changed over time and, to the extent possible, compare Chinese power with other relevant countries. So what makes our research stand out is we rely on combining objective data-driven analysis of China with expert analysis and assessments. So we have a dedicated research website that has short features or reports on different aspects of Chinese power. We also have a bi-weekly podcast, and we also hold an annual conference where we ask leading experts to debate some of the most difficult questions regarding China's growth and trajectory. You know, it's interesting when we talk about power these days, there's lots of, just as this podcast highlights, there's lots of different ways of exercising power and thinking about power. Can you talk a little bit more about how you guys think about that concept of power? As I mentioned, we think about the concept of power through the five different ways. So looking at military power, economic power, technological, social, and international image. For each of our reports, we actually develop a different methodology to look at one aspect of power. So I'll give you an example. Our next upcoming feature is looking at China's military power, and we will be examining China's ability to project military power in its Western Theater Command. That's the military command that borders Afghanistan, but also India. To do so in this feature, this report coming up, we'll be looking at Chinese infrastructure construction in the region, particularly the construction of Chinese PLA Air Force military bases, as well as PLA Army ground bases that can support air operations. So by looking at infrastructure, we're then able to talk about how much China can project military power 
to its Western Theater Command, and also talk briefly about the improvement in China's operational capabilities in that region. You know, there's so much going on right now. As we're taping here on February 4th, Friday, February 4th, the Olympics are just getting underway. And I want want to start there with some of those headlines. Have you had a chance to look at the joint statement? And, And what are your thoughts on that? Sure. And thank you, Suzanne, for asking. This is definitely dominating the headlines. Let me back up a little bit. So prior to this bilateral meeting between President Xi Jinping and President Putin, which occurred before the Olympics, Putin actually penned an op-ed, an article in Xinhua News, which is China's main official media outlet, where he notes the importance of the Beijing Olympics, but he also criticizes other countries who are trying to politicize the sporting event. He used that op-ed to highlight many of the key issues that he was planning on discussing with President Xi. Then in the afternoon of February 4th, President Xi Jinping and Putin had a highly publicized bilateral meeting prior to the start of the Olympics. This meeting, which was accompanied by an unusually long Chinese meeting readout, during this meeting, the two leaders further pledged to deepen their strategic coordination and cooperation. Some of the key terms that I found and key phrases that I found really stand out from this meeting include Xi Jinping's pledge, to, quote, turn the high-level trust between the two countries into cooperation outcomes across the board in a bid to deliver real benefits to the two peoples. Another key quote that I saw from the Chinese readout of this was a joint commitment from the two sides to deepen coordination and, quote, response to international and international landscape full of profound and complex evolution. And, Quote, this is a strategic choice that will have a far-reaching impact on China, Russia, and the rest of the world. Two countries have never and will never waver in this choice, end quote. So when you put together all of these specific quotes and you look at the evolution of China-Russia relations, this key meeting prior to one of the most important events that China has been preparing for for years, the Beijing Olympics, show that China really is setting its relationship with Russia to a much higher level. And this occurrence, as we're seeing tensions between Ukraine and Russia, also signals to the international community that if there is a conflict on Ukraine, it is likely that China will provide support to Russia. We're not talking about military support to Russia and Ukraine, but we're talking about potential political and economic support should Russia decide that the use of military force on its border is justified. So you think this is much more than just a show, that this indeed, as the Chinese statement says, something that really could have far-reaching impact in terms of a truly stronger relationship here between these two sometimes uh, wary, at best, um, allies. Uh, Definitely. I think what we're seeing in the China-Russian relationship is much more than what some call just a marriage of convenience. Most folks have focused on the China-Russia relationship by saying that the two sides are not yet military allies, right? There is no signed mutual defense agreement or treaty. But if you look at what each side needs and the military capabilities of both China and Russia, it's not clear that Russia needs China to send military forces on any of its conflicts that it might want. Similarly for China, given how much it's spent on its rapid military modernization, as well as what's been increasingly talked about these days, China's rapid nuclear modernization, it's also not clear that China needs Russia as a military ally. But what the two countries do need is, as they're facing off 
on their respective borders, they recognize that they are largely facing not only military threats, but potential large political and economic pushback. So what they need is strategic coordination and cooperation on the political, economic, and other fronts, not necessarily military front. So I think what this statement is saying, and given the trajectory of China-Russia relations, is that the two sides are pledging to support each other politically and economically, which is more significant in some ways than military cooperation. These two countries obviously are watching each other very carefully. We know that all these events don't happen around the world in isolation. They're both watching what's happening on the global front. And so it raises questions like, you know, the impact of the timing of the Olympics, potentially on Putin's timing of Putin's decisions with regard to Ukraine. Do you agree that that those are interrelated events? They're definitely interrelated events. And there's been quite a bit of speculation in the media as to whether China had a discussion to ensure that Russia will not invade Ukraine or do take any major offensives in Ukraine during the Olympics. In that respect, those two events are linked. And I think right now, as we're watching things on the Ukraine-Russia side, China is also closely following what's happening there. And that could have profound implications for how China thinks about both its relationship with Russia, China, but also how China thinks about its potential use of military force in its own neighborhood. Yeah, that is something else that experts and media folks have been speculating on, right? That they are watching to see how we respond to this and seeing if that informs their thinking about how we might respond to their own adventurism in their region. So you think there's something to that? For sure. And if you may, let me use this time to point out some of the key similarities as well as key differences between Ukraine and Taiwan, another hot topic that's in the media these days. So some of the key similarities between the two are that both Ukraine and Taiwan face a much more militarily and economically powerful neighbor, Russia and China, in which they have fundamental differences with. Also, a key similarity between Ukraine and Taiwan is that In the event that either China or Russia intend to use military force against either region, the United States will likely need to assemble a coalition allied partners that are not always on the same page. And this coalition is likely to consider not only military intervention, but significant political and economic sanctions. So in that respect, China does understand what Russia is facing with respect to Ukraine. But I want to point out that there are some key differences between how China thinks about Taiwan versus how Russia thinks about Ukraine. There are differences in goals, timelines, but also thinking about use of military force. So on goals, China seeks to unify with Taiwan. In other words, its eventual goal is to fully control Taiwan, similar to how China now controls other territories, such as Hong Kong. Russia is not trying to unify with Ukraine. Instead, Russia is using tensions in Ukraine to achieve other objectives, including to end the potential expansion of NATO to Ukraine, to roll back previous NATO expansion, and to potentially establish a Russian sphere of influence. In terms of timeline, Xi Jinping has repeatedly mentioned that he sees longer trends and time is on China's side when it comes to unification with Taiwan. Within Taiwan, we're not seeing any near-term plans to move towards independence from Taipei. China's military and economic power is also growing vis-a-vis Taiwan, and it's possible that China will have more military and economic power in the future. Poon, on the other hand, is operating on a slightly different timeline as he is more worried in the near term that Ukraine might join NATO. 
In terms of means, Russia has already invaded and seized a part of Ukraine in 2014. In contrast, China has a large number of non-military options to use against Taiwan that it could still significantly escalate. Moving beyond how Russia and China views Ukraine and Taiwan, the United States also has different views of both. Our security commitment for Ukraine is more limited and more recent, whereas the United States has had a long and deep interest in Taiwan. This is, for example, exemplified in the congressional legislation that underpins U.S. relations with Taiwan, the Taiwan Relations Act. If you don't mind, I want to take a little bit more detour to also point out the differences in potential military operations. What we're seeing right now in Ukraine versus how China is thinking about military operations with respect to Taiwan. I'll just make two quick points here. The first is that China is unlikely to engage in a major military mobilization and major military activities against Taiwan in order to negotiate with the United States. That's what Russia is doing with Ukraine, right? Russia is using the crisis right now to negotiate with NATO, negotiate with the United States. From Beijing's perspective, Taiwan is non-negotiable. China seeks unification with Taiwan, period. And if Taiwan moves towards independence, China will invade. The second main difference is Chinese military planning for invasion of Taiwan has been long premised on moving fast. China is likely to conceal its mobilization and preparations for invasion as long as possible in order to launch a rapid amphibious invasion and accomplish a fate complete before U.S. intervention occurs. So we're talking about a matter of weeks. This is the opposite of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Russia has been moving forces to Ukraine since at least early November. That's at least what we're seeing from the news reporting. This slow movement has allowed the United States UK and other countries to flow arms and forces to the region. It has allowed a debate within NATO on what to do with Ukraine. This is not what China has in mind if it wanted to invade Taiwan. Bonnie, those are fascinating insights. Thank you so much for that. And it does highlight, I think, the differences that you've outlined in, in the objectives and the approach, the way that these two countries will go about achieving their different objectives in each of their regions. I'm wondering what you think about what that says in terms of the options for U.S. policymakers and how the tools available to them. We think about with respect to China, with the Olympics starting, you know, of course, we imposed a diplomatic ban on those Olympics. Our senior officials are not going. That was largely in response, really, to the humanitarian crisis. But we've also seen the ban of imports from that Xinjiang region. I'm wondering if you think that our Economic sanction tools, our tools to try to deter or change Chinese behavior are more limited than those with, that we have with respect to Russia and that we really need to think about these two countries in significantly different ways. Uh, that's a good question. And maybe since I'm not a Russia expert, I'll focus more on U.S. tools and options for China. So in terms of the Biden administration goals for the Olympics, and the use of the diplomatic boycott on the Olympics. I think the Biden administration is relatively realistic in terms of what it seeks to achieve with this boycott. And that's to message China and the international community that the United States has strong concerns about Chinese human rights abuses in Xinjiang, and it cannot be business as usual. So I don't think, for example, the administration thought that this boycott would lead to immediate changes on the ground in China and how Beijing treats its people on how Beijing is treating Uyghurs or any of its other minorities. But this administration is expecting that this U.S. effort will build up more international pressure to encourage China to modify its behavior. 
I don't think this administration is trying to use the diplomatic boycott to undermine the Olympics. The United States is still sending athletes to compete and hopes that the sport event will proceed similar to previous years. A secondary goal that the United States has for this diplomatic boycott is to counter the narratives China has about the Olympics. And these narratives include that China wants to use the Olympics to showcase that China has become more powerful economically and politically. China has international support influence and could be a model for other countries. The boycott shows that, yes, China has more capabilities now, but there are strong international concerns regarding China's behavior. So, Bonnie, as we near the end of our conversation here, in light of all of that, you know, certainly there are some experts out there who think that our relationship with China, the relationship between the U.S. and China is as bad as it's almost ever been, certainly since the opening of China. And I'm wondering if you agree with that, where you would put this sort of on a relative scale and what advice you might have for the administration in that regard. Sure. Thank you. So I believe the U.S.-China relationship is much more on the competitive side these days than cooperative. And in that respect, it's worse than the relationship that we saw between the United States and China during the end of the Obama administration, but also during a good period from the 2000s to the 1990s. I think some might disagree with and say that there were some periods during the Trump administration where the Chinese side probably thought that the U.S.-China relationship was much worse than now. And there were probably some moments uh, during the Trump administration in which the Chinese were very scared and concerned about a potential use of force that the United States might take against China. I do think as we look at the relationship, it's not foreordained one way or the other, but I see potential critical sources of tension, change, and uncertainty as we look forward. One major uncertainty is what will happen in Ukraine and the implications of that on the U.S.-China relationship. So if conflict erupts in Ukraine and China supports Russia politically and economically, there are big questions as to how the United States will react. Will the United States extend economic and financial sanctions to China and risk further deepening the China-Russia relationship? Another major question that exists looking forward to the next year is, as China gears up for the 20th Party Congress, there's news that China will be providing an update to its approach towards Taiwan. There's quite a bit of uncertainty on what the details will involve, but there is speculation that China could seek to accelerate the timeline to unify with Taiwan and may offer more details on how to achieve unification. This could contribute to more cross-strait tensions and as a result, U.S.-China tensions. The final thing that I want to flag is that as we look to U.S.-China relations in the future, we also have to take into account our domestic politics. And we have our midterm elections coming this fall. And the results of those elections could very much determine the composition of Congress, as well as determine the U.S. congressional leaders that will shape U.S.-China policy. Lots of important issues there, Bonnie. And I cannot thank you enough for the comprehensive sweep that you've given us in this conversation of not only your expertise on China, but your expertise on China and Russia and that relationship. At this critical time, those insights are so valuable. So thank you. And we look forward to watching this space as you observe the events coming up over the next several weeks and months to gain further insights from you. So thank you so much for taking this time to be with us today. Thank you, Suzanne. It was a pleasure to join you today. 
Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power Podcast is supported by Raytheon. Hey, Smart Women Smart Power listeners. My name is Caitlin Johnson, and I host a podcast called Tech Unmanned, where we elevate women's voices in the intersection of emerging technologies and national security policy. We talk about things like artificial intelligence, quantum, biotechnology, and space. Check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts or at csis.org slash techunmanned.